the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Continue to pray for the, the team in Haiti. So far, I think, I believe the trip is going well. They are not returning until November 11th, I think. So continue to lift them up in prayer. This Friday, there will be an open mic night uh, here at Creekside. So this is just a time for those who may want to share a testimony or uh, maybe, you know, recite uh, some verses of scripture that they've memorized or to share a song. And so if you're interested in participating in that, uh, you can talk to myself, you can talk to Dakota. Uh, Rhonda uh, is helping to do some organization. You, you know, I think there's information here in the bulletin. So if you'd like to participate, let us know. Of course, everyone is welcome just to come and, uh, and be here on Friday night. So, so that is happening this week as well. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so uh, we have a little video that we're going to share with you all. And then I believe when that's done, Anand is going to uh, come up and say, say a word of prayer on behalf of the church. My name is Rebecca. I live in the north of Nigeria. One evening I was out with my daughter. And on our way home, we saw smoke rising above our village. We were under attack. There was nothing we could do to defend ourselves. My husband and I were married in that village. My wedding day, it was the happiest day of my life. Some members of our church gave us a wedding gift. It was a Bible. We read it together, every day. And when our children were old enough, we read it to them and their friends. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. On the day our village burnt to the ground, my husband and my son were killed in the attack. I was devastated. I mourned for many months. Some of us were able to return to our village to reclaim anything that was left. I found a Bible. of Genesis and Revelation were burnt, but the rest was mostly intact. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All flesh is like grass, 
and all its glory like a wild flower. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I still use this Bible. It reminds me of God's faithfulness. Naked I came from my mother's womb, but naked I shall return there. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is a husband to all widows. I look to him for every need. This is what I am still holding on to. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us today to come together as little flock to remember who he is and what he has done. You are God the Creator created the entire universe just by the word of mouth. Whereas a man that was created by your hands and you shared your life and breathed into his nozzles and he became life. Man lost the relationship with God, fell in sin. In order to reconcile the relationship that was lost, Jesus Christ is God, the creator. He came down from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life on the face of the earth. He performed so many miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Those things did not help a man to be redeemed and to reconcile the relationship that was lost. Jesus Christ is God, holy God, perfect man. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. He cried a big cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? When he realized and re recognized and acknowledged that the work of salvation that was completed and accomplished. Again, he cried a big cry. It is finished. He died. He was buried. On the third, third day, he rose again. Appeared to so many people, more than 500 plus, seated on the throne and being exalted by the heavenly realms. And also this morning from the blood-bought children, from the face of the earth, Lord, I and we join the cloud of witnesses to give him glory and honor for who you, who you are and what he has done. Lord, when we realized and repented and returned from our sins, God the Father received us. The Holy Spirit God confirmed us that we are his children. The holy blood that was shed on the cross cleansed us and called us his children. With the same burden, with the same message and mission that as an individual, as the flock that we carry forward the ministry, Lord, I pray that uses for your glory. And also, there are parts of the world that they don't have the opportunity to come like this, to worship you, to glorify you openly and freely. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity for us, and also we pray for the parts of the world that are being persecuted. There are people that are burnt alive, not only the Bibles. Lord, I pray for each and every person who is sincerely carrying the burden 
of Christ, of Christ on their cross, on their shoulders. Lord, please use them. Also give us burden to help them. Lord, we are going to listen to your word. Please speak to us through Pastor Steve and help us to meditate and to walk according to the word that is going to be spoken. I commit ourselves into your mighty and gracious hands and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Anand. Uh, those who are young people, you are dismissed at this time for your uh, children's church. Also, I want to uh, just say that if you're here and you're, uh, as a guest, you're here the first time, we just want to welcome you. Thank you for joining with us. Uh, there is an additional little flap on the bulletin. If you have time, if you are able to fill that out and then just tear it off and put it in the offering box, it's on the table as you come into the church, that would be uh, much appreciated. I wanted to um, just say that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the church and everything else. I uh, just want to put a little plug in uh, this next week. Some of you know that uh, there's an election, so I just want to encourage you. There's an insert in the bulletin to remind you of that. I read just a, a verse this morning that I thought was very appropriate in, as I think about this upcoming election, and uh, it's in Jeremiah 17, verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Uh, not that we, I mean, my encouragement is to vote. I mean, I'm going to encourage you to vote, encourage you to get educated, and vote uh, based upon your Christian convictions, what you see the Word of God saying. But uh, we, our ultimate trust is not in man. Our ultimate trust is in the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah is reminding us of in that passage. As we uh, prepare to study the Word of God this morning, as we're privileged to do, as Anand uh, uh, reminded us in his prayer that not every place in the world can do this worship together without the fear of being persecuted or, you know, their villages being burned or being hauled off to prison, we have that privilege. So let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts to worship you through the study of your word, I ask that you would work in each of us. Lord, your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrows. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I pray that our hearts would be open and responsive to what you want to say to us and what you want, us, want to do in us and through us because of what your word has to say to us. I just pray, Father, that you'd uh, be able to work so that whatever I say is, it comes out is heard as you want it to be heard by each and every person here this morning. And I pray that the things that are in your word would become real to me, more real to me, more real to each of us, that we might allow and receive it for what it is, the word of God and not the word of men. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a world that's uh, fraught with uh, division, strife. I mean, our sinful nature kind of um, means that uh, we, we, we build barriers and we kind of emphasize the things that are distinctions. You know, we want distinctions over unity. We kind of separate ourselves into categories and, you know, I'm of this camp and I'm of, of that camp. And those building of barriers prevents us oftentimes from overcoming 
some innate hostilities that we have uh, towards each other. Uh, and it makes the overcoming of those hostilities more theoretical. What I mean by that is, you look at the world we live in, the society we live in. Um, ethnic prejudice is everywhere. I mean, I've not been all over the world, but I've been around the world. And it doesn't matter what country you're in, there is ethnic prejudice. There's discrimination. Uh, there's pride. Uh, there's war. All that stuff is latent in, in our society, and, and it's ex to be expected. Wherever you go, you kind of, well, that's the way it is. In society, disunity and division is to be expected, but in the church of Jesus Christ, it's to be eliminated. The people to whom Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus, part of the church body there, and in Asia Minor, culturally uh, and uh, ethnically and socially and spiritually, they were on opposite pages. The Gentiles didn't like the Jews. There was intense animosity that threatened the unity of the church at Ephesus, which was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the Greeks thought anybody who wasn't a Greek was a barbarian, and the Jews looked down on anybody who wasn't a Jew because they were God's chosen people. And by the fact that most other people who weren't God's chosen people were persecuting them. So there wasn't this, you know, lovey-dovey, warm, fuzzy feeling when the Jews and Gentiles got together at the church at Ephesus. There was a lot of hostility. There was a lot of animosity. And so, latent, you know, but in Christ... Their, their latent ethnic animosity was set aside because positionally they were to be one. Fact is that they weren't practically one. They struggled to make the, the position they had as one in Christ to be the reality of being one in Christ just like we do today. It's a struggle sometimes for us to come together and, and to be one. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says you've all been baptized into one body uh, in, in Christ by the, by the Spirit of God. We, have, we share this, this unity, but we struggle to live it out. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul makes a case, a case for unity and harmony within his body so that our practice aligns with our position, so that we act like who we really are. Only Christ's power makes us one. Only the power of Christ moves us to be one. It's the power of one person, the person of Jesus, that makes us one, enables us to live like one and have harmony that overcomes our natural differences. And the natural differences kind of breeds some disunity and oftentimes, sometimes hostility. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, as uh, Alan last week opened up the chapter in verses 1 through 10, and now we're going to look at three compelling facts that confirm the unity of believers into one body, that compel us to live in harmony, and actually act like we are a family. 
which is what the Bible tells us that we are. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, I'll read down through verse 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit now there's a lot there uh, but we're going to try to unpack it and look at it in terms of these three facts about that com- uh, that confirm that there is unity and that that unity is intended to bring about a, a harmony a harmony a peace within the body of Christ and so first of all we look at the, the previous separation from Christ that that promoted this hostility so you see the very first word in verse 11 says, therefore. And again, when I, therefore, when you see the word therefore, then you ask, what is it therefore? And it points us back. It indicates that what's to come next concerning the, the new identity that the Gentiles, the Gentile believers have, is based upon the rich mercy of God in rescuing them. That's what Alan was expounding for us last week. Verses 1 through 10 is all about the, but God being rich in mercy. So therefore is, because he's been merciful, now look at your new identity. Remember that formerly you, now he identifies you, you Gentiles in the flesh. Remember, it introduces several demonstrations. He asks them to remember, to reflect, to look back. And if you'll notice, it's mentioned twice. Remember that you formerly, you, you Gentiles who were formerly, and then he comes back in verse 2, you remember, okay? Demonstrations of believing Gentiles past alienation as the basis of, of, of God's and people's, his people's hostility. What's the basis for which God would be hostile to the people? What's the basis for which God's people would be hostile, hostile to the Gentiles? Well, it's their alienation. From God and from these people. And so he lists what those ways that they're alienated and therefore hostile or treated as hostile. First of all, he says uncircumcision. The uncircumcision. It's a derogatory term. It's a defamatory term. It's a dehumanizing label that the Gentiles would use for the Jews. 
Uh, I'm not going to mention any. I could give some illustrations, but I'm not going to give illustrations of common derogatory labels, ethnic slurs that you would mention, or you could mention modern day today. It would be the same thing. That's how you would feel. They were treated with disdain. And Paul references then, you are called, you're the, you're the circumcision, called the circumcision. Now notice he says, in the, you Gentiles of the flesh who are called uncircumcision, and notice how he emphasizes the flesh, this is how I view you, but in the flesh, humanly speaking, you're the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision. Interesting that he uses the so-called circumcision, which I understand to be a reference that condemned their arrogance. Because what were they condemning the, the, the Gentiles for? Well, they weren't in the flesh, they were not circumcised. And so he says, okay, so now you're boasting in some fleshly thing. And I think what he's doing is he's saying to them, you're emphasizing an external distinction that has no spiritual merit. So you think you're better than them because you have a physical distinction, but in actuality, your physical distinction has no spiritual merit whatsoever. So what you're holding up as the crown of your life is really nothing. It's only a fleshly expression. Paul is careful to distinguish between what was assumed. I mean, what did they assume by the fact that they were circumcised? That they were spiritually better. They were spiritually closer to God. He's careful to distinguish by, between what was assumed and what is actually true. Uh, recently, just uh, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, okay, so uh, we could assume that the Inflation Reduction Act would reduce inflation. But we would simply be making an assumption and we would assume that the people who were proponing it or proponents of it were actually in concerned about reducing inflation. But in fact, what we realize is that what's real is not necessarily what somebody assumes. And in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says that real circumcision that marked one out as having a personal relationship with God is defined not in physical terms but in spiritual terms look at Romans chapter 2 verses uh, 28 and 29 for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh now remember Ephesians 2 that's what they're boasting in they were circumcised in the flesh but he says but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from people but from God oh but the Jews were out like We've been circumcised, and you're not circumcised, and so their boasting was in the flesh, not in the spirit, and Paul calls them out on it. Now we read not just about their, their ethnic slur, but the ways in which the Gentiles were alienated from God, and he lists several ways that they're alienated from God. And their alienation from God, again, is the basis for God's hostility towards them. It's also the basis of the Jewish or God's people's hostility towards them, and he lists them, and these are not fun. They're separate from Christ. What does that mean? They're without Christ. I remember several years ago, 
had the privilege of serving with a, a guy as our associate in youth ministry in another church. And he was, we were talking one day, and he says, you know, I had the strangest thing. This is crazy. I had this student in our youth group, and, and, and the, the student said, who is Jesus? Had no clue who the person of Jesus is, person of Jesus Christ. And that wasn't a strange thing for that because it was common among the, the, the students in that, in that situation. It was strange to him, it was strange to me, but it wasn't strange. The people that Paul is talking about, the Gentiles, they had no clue that there was a Messiah and that they had a need for a Messiah. And I would submit that the most pitiable position of anyone on planet earth is to not know that there is a Messiah and not to know that they have a need for a Messiah, a Savior. They were ignorant of this. And before salvation, the Gentiles were caught in godless paganism or, at best, uh, gruesome idolatry. Then, he, 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 he goes on, now they, were, they were separate from Christ. Then they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The people of Israel were part of a kingdom. They were part of a nation, and, and God was the king. But if you weren't Jewish, you were not part of the commonwealth uh, of Israel. They were not part of it. They, they didn't have any wonderful privileges of being part of God's people. That you would go along with it. Now look at Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5 where Paul articulates what those privileges were for the people of Israel. Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, daughters. And daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? The Messiah is, is coming to us. The Messiah is from us. We have all of this. We have the feasts. We have the festivals. We have the law. We have all of this stuff. And the Gentiles don't. The Gentiles were outside of the purview of God. They were, they were outside of the, the protection of God, the privileges of God. And the provisions of God. All of that. They were, no, didn't have any of that. We have a team of folks from Creekside that are in Haiti right now. And I've talked to some people in, you know, about Haiti and what's going on in Haiti. And it's tough. I mean, getting food is, is, is a day-to-day -day challenge. Fuel to, to, to get the food is like virtually impossible. Electricity is, you know, sporadic. None of the people that our U.S. team is ministering to have any of the privileges, positions, or are, are on the radar of the United States government. They're not citizens. They don't have that privilege. They don't have purview. But our team does. The Gentiles had nothing as far as the, the Jewish people were concerned. They're, you're just outside. You're just not part of the team. And then it says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 12. See, God, the big promise that God promised to Abraham was that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis 22, verse 17. The foundational covenant... Of, 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 of salvation through Abraham to all people 
is latent in all the other covenants. Now, you may not be all familiar with all the covenants, and that's why some of this language gets a little bit cumbersome. But, you know, you had the Mosaic Covenant, and then you had the Davidic Covenant, and you've got the New Covenant. All these covenants have one thing in common. God is seeking to communicate to people that if they have faith in Him, they'll be saved. They'll have eternal life. That's the thrust. That's That's the point. God wants them to know that they can have eternal life if they exercise faith. And the Gentiles run aware of all the promises, God's promise of salvation through Abraham's seed. And that's in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 18. You know, Abraham has just said he was good and tried to offer up Isaac, who was the one through whom God had promised him that he would be blessed and have many people and raise up a, a, a seed, an offspring, that through him all the nations of earth will be blessed. And, it, and God says, no, it's really, not, it's really not Isaac. It comes through Isaac, but it's really a seed. And that seed is actually the person of Jesus, which Paul reminds us of in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where he declares that that seed is Jesus. And the Gentiles, they didn't know this. They didn't know that God promised that through Abraham all the nations of earth would be blessed and that it would be his seed, individual, the person of Jesus, that would be the one through whom people would come into a relationship with him and have this eternal life which the covenants and promises were pointing to. They were outside of it. But according to Romans chapter 4 and Galatians 3, the reception of the promise, uh, if you want to write them down, Romans 4.13 and Galatians 3.16-18, through 18, the, the promise of salvation, the promise that in him all the nations of earth would be blessed, the promise of salvation is for those who are Abraham's descendants by means of faith. Not by means of lineage, not by means of the law, but by means of faith. And again, all the, they're all outside of that. So apart from Christ, then the, the next one is they had no hope. What's hope? It's a confident expectation in the future. Something better is coming. Something to look forward to. Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Uh, $44 billion. Uh, you can buy it. You know, just up for sale. Let's have an auction. You know? $44 billion. He bought Twitter. And the expectation, the hope is that he is going to open up that social media platform so that there's greater freedom of speech is that going to happen we don't know we don't know but that's the hope the hope that he will do so see real hope is based not just on hope but real hope is based on a promise that's rooted in the confidence that we have in the one who made the promise if there's no confidence in the one who made the promise then the promise doesn't offer us any hope at all. Well, what was Israel's hope in? A promised Messiah through Abraham. This was the hope of the promises that they had, that there would come to them a Savior, a Deliverer, and the Messiah to bring salvation. And, you know, again, we can get down on them because a lot of them in Jesus' day thought this was just salvation from the Romans, but it was actually salvation from their sin that he sent this Savior and that he would have it. Well, Hope in Jesus as God's promised Messiah is grounded 
in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we, in the first service, we were looking at Acts 13, and I had to refrain myself from jumping up and start uh, looking, but if you, if you looked in Acts 13, particularly in verses 32 and 33, you'd see that Paul says that we know that this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one to bring salvation because he has risen from the dead. That's the ground upon which we build our confidence that the promise of God is being fulfilled. And the Jews had no, or the, the Gentiles had none of that. Our hope is not in what Christ means in this life. Well, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher. Well, he was a prophet. Well, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet. But that's not the limit of who Jesus was. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, that it, it, you know, we don't want to hope in Christ in this life only. If, if that's the hope we have of Christ is in this life only, we are to be pitied. No. In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 20, he says, but he has he is been risen from the dead. The fact is, he is risen from the dead, the first fruits. What is our hope in? Our hope is in a better life. Our hope is in salvation. The hope is in forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And that hope is based upon a person, a person whose promise we can trust in because that person has conquered sin and death. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Hopelessness is a sad condition apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, what's the motto? What's a person's motto if they don't have Christ? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's what you got to hope in. But we just had a wonderful service, the first service, talking about the blessed hope we have that beyond this life there, there, is, there is hope because of Christ. That, that we live now in eternal life, waiting for the transition from this realm to the next one. But it's not an end. It's, it's a continuation. And it's more glorious because of Christ. And finally, he says, they're without God in the world. Not without God's, little g. Where's Ephesus? Well, it's Asia Minor, the center of the worship of Artemis, the great temple of Diana, and a whole host of other idols, as well as worshiping the emperor. So it wasn't they were without gods, they were without the God, the true God. Isn't that the world we live in? There's no lack of gods. Well, no lack of idols. No lack of things that people worship. No lack of spirituality. But there's a tremendous vacuum of those who worship the true God. And those, who are with, those without God are, as, as, as Paul says in Galatians 4, he says they're slaves to those who are no gods. They're slaves to their own lusts. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5 uh, says this of the Jews. He says, not in lustful, of the Gentiles, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So if you're without God, the true God, you live in the lustful passions of your flesh and you worship those who are no gods. I find it more than coincidental that if you take your Bibles and look at chapter 2, verse 3, that the indictment that is given against the Gentiles is exactly the indictment that God gives of the Jews. The we. We lived in the lust of our flesh. 
condemned before God. So all stand condemned before God. Now, I ask myself, you should ask yourself, why in the world did Paul spend all of this freight on describing the Gentiles? And notice how he begins it in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly, you Gentiles, formerly, their, their past separation from Christ promotes hostility. Why? Because when we remember the appalling wretchedness from which we've been delivered, it helps us to appreciate more fully what it means to be united to Christ and to His people and motivated to live at peace with those for whom Christ died and brought us into union with. Secondly, we see our present unification in Christ that it produces eternal harmony. The text lays it out for us in verse 13, but now, so therefore you formerly, but now we're into the present, indicates, now he's going to indicate a stark contrast, but is a contrast, but indicates a contrast between their past alienation and their present position. Uh, I, used to be a, I used to be a fan of Disney. But now, uh, not so much. Uh, you know, they made some stupid stuff decisions, in my opinion. Just, I'm just speaking for me. I'm not, this is not a church. You know, I'm just saying me. Uh, they, they, they're out full bore onto some stuff, supporting some stuff that I just think is uh, wrong. And so I'm not a fan. Two facts in the text support unity in Christ as a present reality that is intended to produce harmony. First of all, pardon is the reason for our inclusion in Christ. Notice the text begins in verse 13, but now in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <laughs> okay. We're in Christ because of His, His great mercy, saved by grace through faith. You formerly far-off Gentiles have been, I just love this language, you've been brought near. You were way off. Now you've been brought near. Not, not geographically, not physically, but into spiritual intimacy with God. You, and I would put in parentheses or uh, asterisks or whatever, to God. You've been brought near to God. Okay? doesn't say that in the text. To spiritual intimacy. And here the imagery is, is from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 57, I'm sorry. Verses 15 through 19 talks about being brought near. And it's those who come with humility. He says, I will not cast you off. I will, I will care for you. If you come with humility and come to me, I will, I will not cast you out. I will not d d dismiss you. So they've been brought near. And how it is that they've been brought near? Read the text. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ. You Gentiles. Without God, without Christ, no hope, alienated, separated, strangers. Through the blood of Christ. You've been brought near 
Sin separates us from God, from Christ. It makes us His enemies. It makes us deserving of His wrath and condemnation. Apart from divine intervention. Now, I want to point this out. But now in Christ, you formerly were far off, have been brought near. All through this text, we see what Christ has done for us. And what Christ has done in us. Not like we're just standing around, oh, I'm going after God now. No, you were alienated. You were far off. Now you have been brought near. That's a passive thing. It's not something I do. It's something that's been done for me and to me. Through Christ's blood, a believer's relationship of hostility with God is replaced by one of peace and goodwill. Through the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ, we're enemies of God. In the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. Reconciled, that's what reconciled means. A relationship of hostility has been replaced by one of peace and goodwill. Now, I want you to see Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, it says this, And through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You have been brought near. By the blood of the cross of Christ. That's what peace is. What's peace? The absence of hostility. It's a reconciliation. There was one of hostile hostility. Now it's been replaced by that of peace and goodwill. I was getting a, a series of uh, notices in the mail. Uh, Marla and I were. Um, from our homeowner's insurance company. Uh, this is a notification of cancellation of your policy because the uh, lack of payment of the uh, premium. Well, you know, our mortgage company is supposed to be paying this. They, they withhold the money and it's put into escrow account. And if that's all language you don't understand, uh, I know the terms, uh, but I don't really understand it either. It's just, you just give them money and then the, the mortgage company pays the insurance. Well, the mortgage company didn't communicate with the uh, insurance company or the insurance company didn't communicate with the mortgage company that they were raising the premium but they raised the premium like everything's being raised so they raised the premium so when the mortgage company paid the insurance it wasn't enough to cover the premium and so they were going to cancel my policy you know and you get these threat letters and I'm going I mean okay it was like uh, like a $200 difference so they're going to cancel my policy because I didn't pay $200 you know before I can, if you don't get it paid by a certain, certain time, you know. So, you know, a phone call here, a phone call there, a phone call there, getting on my computer, blah, 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 uh, paying it with my bank account, and, and then I still get letters. I mean, even after I paid it, I was getting letters that they're going to cancel my policy. But once they got the payment into their account, guess what? All of a sudden, I'm a nice guy. Oh, your policy has been reinstated. Wonderful. Apart from Christ... We haven't paid our premiums, and our, we're going to be canceled. But in Christ, we've been brought near into the very presence of God. And so pardon is the reason we're included. It's in Christ. That does it mean to be in Christ. It means to be we're part of the family of God. And then he goes on. And secondly, peace is the result of our inclusion. Pardon is the reason we're in Christ, but peace is the result 
And there's three statements that I think that stuck out to me in the text as I work through this that affirm Christ's activity to bring about our unity. And that unity should result in harmony, peace. First, you see in verse 14, it says, For he himself, love it, twice. It's he himself. Now, who's it? it's, it's like an emphatic, there, there aren't two really words there, but it has to be translated that way in the Greek because it's an emphatic emphasis on the pronoun. Uh, pronouns matter. He himself. Christ himself is our peace. In Christ, in Christ alone, we have peace with God. Paul says it in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is no longer a target on my back if I'm a child of God. Nor yours. If you're a child of God, we have peace with God. But also, we have peace with... It's, he's our peace. Peace with God and peace with others who are at peace with God. Okay. Why? Why is it that we have peace with God and peace with others? Because He Himself, there it is again, made us both one. That's the ESV translation. See, we're indwelled. If every person who has, has put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is indwelled by the same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. You can write that down. And we are spiritual equals. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Don't go there uh, to that slide yet. And in Colossians 3.11. Uh, There's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ. That means no distinctions. All the discord, every bit of discord and disunity in the world is a result of sin. And what Paul is telling us here is sin has been dealt with. So that the discord and disunity that separates us from God, that's taken care of. The discord and disunity that's been that separates us from others has been taken care of. So there should be unity. As there is harmony with us and God. Our identity as children of God, as believers, is in Christ. That's who we are. My identity is in Christ. It's not black. It's not white. It's not male. It's not female. It's not rich. It's not poor. It's not educated or uneducated. It's not Indian, Asian, uh, African, Liberian, uh, you name it. It's in Christ. That's who I am. That's who you are. And that's how we should see each other, is in Christ. That's why one of the reasons why this, this um, virulent and uh, malignant teaching of critical race theory is repugnant and, and contrary to Scripture, because it magnifies and teaches otherness rather than oneness, which we would expect from the world, Right? disunity and disharmony and discrimination and all that stuff that's the way of the world because that's our fallen nature but in Christ no way that's not who we are then it says the dividing wall 
And, and he did this because how he did this. He broke down, uh, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now you're going, whoa. Again, you have to understand, Paul, Jewish background, speaking to the Gentiles and the Jews who were in Ephesus, they understood this. There was a barrier. There was a barricade, a short stub wall between the court of the Gentiles in the temple and the rest of the temple. It was to keep the Gentiles out, but actually it was intended as a place where the Jews would go out and proselytize the Gentiles. But they made it into a separation place. It was a place that they set up the court where they set up the money changers and Jesus went through and, and ripped them out uh, in, in, in the Gospels. But they made it a separation. It Not only was it a physical barrier that separated the Jew and Gentile, but it kind of symbolizes the, the cultural, ethnic, and social barrier that existed between them. It was a thing that separated them. And Jesus broke it down, the text says. But he didn't just break down that barrier. Because in breaking down that barrier, he broke down every, permanently broke down every barrier that exists between people who come to faith in Christ. He breaks it down. And it says, so you know, some of you are alive long enough. You can Google this if you weren't. Uh, in 1989, uh, President Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. The wall separating East Germany and West Germany, representing communism versus the free world. And in, in 1989, it began to be torn down. And what Paul says is that Jesus, in his flesh, <laughs> on the cross, tore down the wall that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. And what was this the enmity? What was this hostility? What was this enmity that he talks about? If you read in verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law. Well, yeah, the law. The law of God is the enmity. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 explains it a little bit better. So I want you to look at that. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Jesus did that. Well the law showed us our sin and it showed us our deserving of judgment. So it was hostile to us because it made us sinners and we deserve God's judgment. And so we needed to be punished for that. In his flesh, Jesus nailed our sin to the cross, removing that enmity towards us. But there were also these rules and regulations and feasts and festivals and washings and all these ceremonial regulations that were separating the Jews and the Gentiles. And when Jesus died on the cross, guess what? All that went poosh, destroyed, no longer necessary. The moral law still is in existence, right? We still have to follow the Ten Commandments, yes. And, but the, the ceremonial law, it's all done. At the foot of the cross, all human beings become one in Christ. Not at the foot of the, I say at the foot of the cross. When we surrender to Christ, we become one. No ethnic, geographic, cultural, language, Gender or national distinction separates those who are in Christ. I can pray in English with my Hungarian brothers and sisters and know that we are praying to the same God. They can pray in Hungarian. They can pray in Spanish, Slovakian, Romanian, Telugu. You name the language. And they're praying to God Almighty. And we are one in Christ. 
Because of what Jesus has done, he took out all the barriers and laid them down. We are one. Then it says in verse 15, the end of the verse, that in himself, he, what, might make us one new man. It's a revolutionary concept. One new man. Jew, Gentile, brought together, becoming one. Kind of like marriage, huh? One and one equals one. Do that math. It's not discriminatory either. It's God's math. One plus one equals one. He himself might make one new man. Christ's work makes one man unique, better in quality. Uh, My niece's husband works as a metallurgic engineer for Caterpillar, and he is taking elements and metals and trying to combine them together to make stronger and better metals so they can use them in their industrial equipment. You know, stronger and lighter or more economical. God in Christ eliminated any enmity between us and God and between us and each other, established harmony in one new man. And he did this, verse 16 says, that he might reconcile them both into one body. Do you see the one part that keeps coming up here? One body, one man, we're one. And that's, that's the emphasis that he wants us to see. On the cross, Christ took the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself, destroying the enemy of God. He nailed it to the cross. He, he took the enmity that God had towards us and he took it on the cross. That believers, he took the enmity of God towards us and then the enmity of us towards each other so that we might be this one, an end to discrimination, an end to anti-Semitism, an end to hatred, an end to segregation, an end to bigotry. Sadly, we haven't learned the lesson that we're one. Uh, people ask me frequently to say, well, you know, how, how did COVID uh, affect your church? The church you serve. Not my church. It's Christ's church. I just, I just work here. Uh, I'm just an under-shepherd. I say, it's, it, COVID exposed the immaturity of the church. Shined a big, bright spotlight on our deficiency in our ecclesiology, which is our teaching of the church. Paul says we're one in Jesus, but I've seen us acting like a bunch of uh, uh, independent-minded, spoiled kids. Well, we got the vaxxed and the masked, and then we got the unvaxxed and the unmasked, and never the twain shall meet. You're going to require this of me, you're going to require that of me, I'm out of here. We're one. In Christ is our identity. Not in government mandates, not in government requirements and regulations and suggestions and misguided information and other people giving misguided information. We're one in Jesus. And it saddens me to see people who profess to know faith in Christ, that they're going to just bail 
Because, you know, I told people it was a no-win situation. If we were required masks and vaccinations, people would have left. If we would have said no vaccinations, uh, no masks, people would have left. And they did. It didn't matter what you did. You were, and these are supposed to be people who know Jesus. And we're supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to love each other, care for each other, live in harmony with one each other because of Christ. Two seventeen, he says, and he came and preached peace. And you gotta love it, as he as he as he quotes Isaiah fifty seven nineteen, the passage I alluded to earlier. He came. Who's he? Jesus. Acts chapter ten, verse thirty six says that. Uh, I think do we have that one? Maybe we don't. I'm supposed to read that one. Sorry. No, it is? Okay. Uh, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He came preaching peace. Oh, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming happiness, saying, Our God reigns. That's Isaiah 52. He proclaimed peace. We don't have to be enemies of God. He proclaimed peace to whom? To you who were far away. And who was that? The Gentiles. And to you who are near? The Jews. The same proclamation of peace to the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus made it. Proclaiming the same offer of peace to both. So you can look down your nose on somebody because they don't have the same traditions as you do. Because they grew up in a different country than you do. Because the skin of their, of their skin is different color than yours. Because they have different political perspectives. But we're supposed to be one in Jesus. We have the same peace. And then finally, the last statement is this in, in, in verse 18. For through Him, Jesus... We both have access, our access, in one spirit to the Father. Same spirit indwells every child of God. We're going to see that in chapter 4, verse 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all. One, 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 one. And yet we act like a bunch of knuckleheads running around. That's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. No, no, you're one. Through faith in Jesus, every believer has access in the same spirit to the Father. He's our dad. And we should come to him. Romans, Romans 8.15 says, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. We come to him in tenderness. And we come to him with intensity. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need because our dad cares about us. And we can come into his presence, into his throne room, into his arms and say, Dad, this is where I'm at. I totally feel like I'm screwed up. Help me. Our past alienation or separation from Christ breeds hostility. Our, our present unification produces harmony. 
And finally, we see that there's this profound inclusion through Christ that promotes a, a building up of the community, our, our enriching of each other and of God's community. And there's two truths that I want to focus on that, that inform this conviction that we've been included in God's family, that, and that inclusion should produce a, a deeper community. First of all, our forever identity in verse 19 so then, now you see the, how the text lays out in verse 11, it's therefore, in verse 13, it's but now, and then in 19, it's so then, okay? So as you read down through the Bible, as you read the text, look for those clues, because it gives you an idea that there's something, a shift in the idea, and this introduces the Gentiles' newfound identity with implications on how we're supposed to live, and it sets up the contrast between being excluded that's verses 11 and 12. And being included now. You were excluded. Now you're included. Okay? And notice the, the, these beautiful word pictures that he gives to illustrate and to describe that contrast and what our new identity is in Christ. First of all, we're fellow citizens. Look up at verse 11. What, what, what were they? They were without Outside the commonwealth of Israel. They, they weren't citizens. No, not, but now they are fellow citizens. Uh, I didn't ask Alfonso if I could do this, but a few years ago, our brother Alfonso became a U.S. citizen, right? Came to the United States as a refugee. Probably had, you know, a status, green card status as a resident alien. And then he became, see, he was a refugee and then an alien, but now he's a citizen, Bless you, brother. He's not a Liberian, although he may still have his Liberian citizenship. Do you still have your Liberian citizenship? Are you a Liberian citizen still? He has, if he does, he has dual citizenship. All of us have dual citizenship, right? Uh, in Christ and in, in, in our country. But he is a citizen. He's a fellow citizen. He is a, an American. Do you see him other than that? No. You see him as an American. And that's how we should, we should see each other as believers in Christ. We're part of the kingdom. You're fellow citizens. Every believer is of equal significance before God. Okay, then he says, of God's household. From despised foes to beloved family. I thought about the story of Nate Saint and uh, Roger Udarian and uh, all, Jim Elliott and all those boys that died uh, in the, on that beach, uh, well, sandbar, uh, killed by the Aka Indians. And you know that Nate Saint was one of them, and his son Steve Saint has been traipsing around the, the world with a guy by the name of Minke, who was one of the men who killed his dad. Now, how does that happen? In Christ, their family. You go figure. In Christ, their family. Steve Saint takes the guy who killed his dad and says, He is my brother in Christ. And I love him. And I would die for him. Only in Christ. We are part of God's household. 
We're recipients of his tender affection, his wise direction, and his caring discipline of a father who loves us just like he loves his son. So, I get a little peeved when it's our pride and our pettiness and our preferences that separate us. Well, you know, that music, I don't know, I... I don't know. I just can't really get, get into it. Uh, you know, the color scheme, and I, I don't know. I just think we could do better. Or maybe we can. You know. Well, you know, uh, the pastor, pastor he kind of tells me that I'm a sinner and I need to repent. Um, well, duh, yeah. Uh, so am I. So that kind of offends me. So I think I'll go down the road to a church that makes me feel better. I want to leave feeling good about myself. And this is not the body of Christ that does that stuff. It, it, it happens uh, because we're all in process, okay? You know, I'm a knucklehead, you're a knucklehead, we're all knuckleheads moving together uh, and seeking to become more like Christ, and Christ is moving us uh, along, we hope and pray. But there's this forever identity, and then there's this future activity. You see, the final metaphor that he uses to describe the body of Christ is a building, a temple. A holy dwelling place for God. And this stresses our, our unity and our responsibility. And the foundation of this building, he says, is the apostles and the prophets. Okay? And I think it refers primarily to their uh, proclamation of revelatory truth. In that way, they were um, building, actually, building the, 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 the kingdom of God. They were building the church. But also, if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, what does Jesus say of Peter? Uh, Upon this rock, I will build my church. So they were building it, and they were, they were building the foundation, and they were the foundation, kind of, at the same time. But the, the premier part of the foundation that he focuses on is the person of Jesus, the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. Christ as the cornerstone, the chief building stone, the one you set in place, sets the direction, provides the stability, provides the alignment, provides the strength for the building to be built upon. We're all part of the kingdom, part of the same building. It is, it says in verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, and, uh, but fellow citizens and saints and are of household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, <laughs> I love it, in whom, who's he whom, who's the whom? It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Every verse, it's Jesus. Because apart from him, we're toast. In whom the whole building. Now, that's the church in all of its locations. The universal church in each of its local manifestations. The whole building is being what? Fitted individually as separate, distinct, and no, together. We're fitted together. Uh, I've been working on this uh, um, patio project in our backyard. Uh, and so uh, it's a flagstone project. You take these big stones and you try to put them together like pieces of a puzzle. You don't have a box that shows you the picture of the puzzle you're trying to put together. And you're trying to fit them together. 
You are stones. I am a stone in God's building that he is fitting us precisely and meticulously together. And we are growing up. The, the, the building is growing up, okay, into a holy temple. Growing in the sense that there are more and more and more of us joining into the building because it's not going to be complete till all who are to believe believe right the, the building won't be complete till every believer who is a living stone first peter chapter 2 verse 5 is put in place all right so when every person puts their faith or the trust in jesus as lord and savior and comes to faith in christ guess what Whoop, gets added to the building gets added to the building gets put in there a holy temple a separate set apart place for God it is God that in verse 22 then he uses a different picture that we are says in whom you also are being built together again built together into a building of God God's building in the spirit it's a spiritual building the spirit of God resides on earth in the church Wrap your brain around that one. The Spirit of God resides on earth in the church, the universal church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And we are His witnesses. Yes, the Spirit of God, I, you know, each individual is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19, 20. But we are, as the church, a body of Christ. So here's the deal. The power of Christ's blood makes aliens into fellow citizens. The power of Christ's blood takes strangers and brings them into the family. Makes the uncircumcised in the flesh circumcised of heart. Those without God become reconciled to God. Idolaters become a holy temple. Believers and so my challenge to you if you don't know Christ is, hey, look, you are separate from God in Christ, but in Christ you can become part of the family and you have a promise of eternal salvation that is only available to you in Christ. And so I say don't wait, repent and trust Christ now. Those of us who know Christ, guess what? We're one. There's a a brother in Christ that I know serves and has a ministry in another country. And there is a man that was formerly a hitman. Uh, you know, we talk about persecuted church. He was a guy who went out to take out Christians. Okay, that was, his, that was his calling in life. Like the Apostle Paul. That man came to faith in Jesus Christ. He's now the pastor of an evangelical church in this country. That is the power of Christ. And they are one body. Believers come and actually listen to this guy who used to be a person who killed him, just like people came and listened to the guy who wrote this book, Ephesians, and were changed because of it. Ethnic and cultural and social economic and political and educational and geographic and religious distinctions, they just fall away. Or they're supposed to. If our position is consistent with our practice in Christ. And we are one in the body, so let's act like it. That's my challenge for us as believers, to act like who we are. And, you know, what better way to, to 
conclude this idea about being one in Christ than by remembering how it is we're one in Christ through the blood of Christ. So as we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that it's only in Christ that we are at peace with God and peace with each other and have the power of Christ to make it so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you for your word and um, I pray that you would work in each heart who doesn't know you, that they'd see that they're separate from Christ. They're without God and have no hope in this world. But they can have hope and eternal life through forgiveness if they put their faith or their trust in you and turn from their sin and trust you. And I pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that we would see more consistently and more practically that we are one in the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.